announcement we won't meet next week next week is the five days of prayer monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday five to ten in the morning five to ten in the evening and so uh, that'll usurp this class so if you get here for the class uh, you will notice there won't be anybody in here but there'll be a bunch of people over there so you can just join the crowd over there instead of going home if you forget let's pray together and we'll look at hebrews 5 Father, thank you for tonight. We pray that you would just bless us, guide and direct us, use your word in each of our lives to grow and to be, uh, Lord, more fruitful as we serve you. We want to make every day of our life count and to be able to present to you someday a heart of wisdom. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 is what we'll go through tonight. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. Because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So one of the big deals in the book of Hebrews is the Old, Test, the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And the writer is convincing those uh, that he's writing to, speaking to, who are mostly Jewish, in origin, that the old covenant is no longer uh, the viable covenant, the new covenant now is. And so he will deal through the book of Hebrews a contrast between the two and the key difference between them. And so this passage here, and he goes on on this topic through the rest of the book of Hebrews, is the old covenant had the Aaronic priesthood, the new covenant has the priesthood of Jesus. So there has been a change of priest. They were under Aaron and his sons and his descendants as the high priest. And now there's a new high priest, Jesus, the son of God. And so he will make a contrast between those two uh, priests. So in your notes, number one, in the old covenant, God dealt with people through a high priest. He dealt with the people, the nation of Israel, through a high priest. I've never watched it, but my kids all watched it and told me about the uh, television program called The Most Dangerous Jobs or Most Dangerous Occupations or something like that. It's probably you've seen it. And uh, fishing in the ocean up in Alaska was uh, a dangerous job. It is my opinion that the most dangerous job that has ever existed in the history of mankind is being an Old Testament high priest. Because if you messed up, you got fried on the spot. And there was no room for error, and it didn't have to be a big mess up. So if you remember the sons of Aaron, who were supposed to offer uh, offering in a certain way, and they didn't, and there was nothing left but the frying pans uh, that they were making the offering in. And so God didn't tolerate uh, any um, mistakes as a high priest. And so as you read some of the stories in the Old Testament about being a high priest, it's like 
I'm not sure I'd like that job. Uh, you had to be pretty careful that you did it just right. And so they had a responsibility, and that responsibility uh, was to be carried out just exactly the way God wrote about it uh, and gave instructions in the Old Testament that they needed to do. And the reason was because each of those uh, illustrated something about God, his character, and the whole plan uh, of future, our future salvation was illustrated as a type by those activities. If you remember Moses and they were without water and they were complaining and God said strike the rock with the rod and he did and water came out and it must have been a river because of the volume and number of people and the livestock that they had and so it was a huge volume of water and then later they went through a similar situation and God said to Moses speak to the rock but Moses was a bit ticked off at the people's hardness of heart and so he struck the rock a second time and the result was he couldn't go into the promised land. He died before they went into the promised land. And you read that story and you think, well, Moses put up with a lot. I mean, all that he did in Egypt and he went through and, and he let them all out. It doesn't really seem reasonable that God would keep him out of the promised land for something as simple as hitting it with a rod instead of speaking to it. But one of the things that is clear is that that rock, Paul said, was a picture or a type of Christ. Moses striking the rock was a picture that he someday would be struck, killed, died for our sins. And uh, the clear teaching was that Jesus would die once. And so Moses messed the picture up by striking the rock twice. And that was such a big deal to God the Father that Moses wasn't able to go into the promised land because of that violation of the picture, the typology that God was portraying of the future salvation of our future salvation through his son Jesus. So if you messed up as a high priest, you're in trouble. But they had a job, and that was to be the intercessory. They were between God and the people. If you lived back during that time, you couldn't pray to God directly. You couldn't confess your sins directly. Everything was done through a priest. And so they were important. The high priest was responsible to offer up animal sacrifices for the sins of the people. And if you read about those, it was an incredible volume of animals. And those guys had to be like the greatest butcher ever to be able to do the volume of animal sacrifices that they did. And they didn't simply just, you know, get a little blood. They totally butchered them, offered up every part uh, as a burnt offering to God. The high priest would intercede to people for God in prayer. He was the one that they would talk to and he would take their request to God. Uh, they didn't pray to him directly. The, the high priest would tell the people what the will of God was for their life. When they traveled in the wilderness, in the promised land, they didn't get the vote on it. They didn't get to decide. It was whatever the high priest decided on the basis of God communicating to that one individual. And then the, the, the Shekinah glory on the daytime and the fire, the pillar of fire at night over the temple uh, would reveal to them as well whether they were traveling or not. I'll read, <coughs> I'll read um, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what they did. They offered up gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And so when you say, what did an Old Testament priest do? He offered sacrifices. 
That was 90% of his job. Uh, he offered sacrifices for sins, for his own sins, for the sins of the people. Hebrews 9, 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So there was a special once a year uh, offering inside the, the Holy of Holies that was done for the sins that people weren't aware of. Every sin that they were aware of, they would bring a lamb, a turtle dove, a bull to the priest, and it would get offered, and it would take care of their sins. But there were some that they, did, they didn't, uh, weren't aware of, and so the priest would take care of that for them, going into the Holy of Holies once a year, taking care of all the sins of everybody, uh, that, that, that which they'd committed that they were unaware of. Number two, in the new covenant, Jesus has become our high priest. So now we can each one go to God directly through him. So when uh, I prayed, at the end of my prayer, I said, in Jesus' name we pray. And almost everyone who prays, prays that, Jesus gave us that formula in the Gospel of John to pray in his name. Now, that's not a magic formula. That's not a special words. It is an acknowledgement on our part what we're actually doing. And that is we're praying to the Father through Jesus. He is our intercessor. That is, he takes our prayers and intercedes or takes them then to the Father. We don't pray directly to God the Father. We pray to him through Jesus. He is our high priest. Our prayers go to him, and he takes them to the Father, and, uh, and he fixes them for us make some good prayers. Uh, the Holy Spirit, it says, intercedes for us with words too deep for groaning beyond our ability and our understanding of it. Hebrews 5, 6, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest, speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever. So from this point on, Jesus is our high priest, never to be changed again, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That is, Jesus had to be made like us in every detail so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So he would be merciful. He would understand us, understand our problems, our weakness, our sins, and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So yesterday morning, I ate breakfast at Denny's restaurant with three different groups of guys. And I ate an ultimate omelet and gave away my pancakes, my hash browns, and my toast because I'm on a diet. And uh, I didn't pay for it. So Jack Braun paid for it. So he became my propitiation. That is, he paid my bill. And so Jesus became our propitiation. Uh, that's a big word, which simply means he picked up the tab. He paid the bill. Every sin, every little sin, big sin, has a consequence or a price that needs to be paid because God is holy and just. No sin can simply be winked at. And so he paid the bill. He paid the price of our sin. Hebrews 3, 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider, think about, ponder Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4, 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus totally understands what we've gone through because he became exactly like us. 
We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. So in the Old Testament, they did uh, everything but draw near with confidence. Uh, there was a lot of nervousness and fear about the whole procedure of coming to the high priest, coming with the lamb, coming with the bull or various animals. And we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That is the throne that the Father sits on so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because Jesus is our high priest. We can enter with confidence, with total absence of fear because he will hear and he will answer our prayers and forgive us our sins. Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to go through this, and you're going to wonder, how many times is it going to be repeated in the book of Hebrews? It's repeated a lot. Jesus is our high priest. He is our high priest. He repeats that over and over and over again. Hebrews 7.11, now, perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of, of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Uh, Hebrews 7. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They had a high priest, and he died, so they had another high priest, and he died, and they had another high priest, and he died. So there was a bunch of them. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. So a priest, we go through him. We draw near to God through Christ since he always lives to make intercession. To make intercession, he is our intercessory. That is, we go to him. He goes to the Father. He always lives to make intercession for them, for us. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So no longer is sacrifice needed, neither for himself or for us. He took care of it one time by offering up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. The word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Moving on to chapter 9. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit the Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Cleanse us, our conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant, and that's the big deal in the book of Hebrews. No longer the old covenant, now the new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Number three, with Jesus now as our high priest, we are living under the rules of the new covenant, not the law of the old covenant. And so we've talked about this before. The writer of the book of Hebrews brings it up often and regularly. And in our day, as we look at various uh, teachings, false teachings, heresies, 
driftings one way or the other. This is one that kind of keeps popping its head up, has since the very beginning of the church. That is, if we're going to be a real Christian, we have to follow the old covenant laws. And the writer of the Hebrews says, no, we are under the new covenant. These were Jews and they wanted to go back. And they kept telling other Gentile believers, if you're going to be a real Christian, you've got to follow Old Testament law. You've got to worship on the Sabbath. You've got to eat the food that, they, that are outlined in the Old Testament. And you have to keep the Sabbath. And so the writers, Paul and others, kept writing and saying, no, no, no. We no longer are under the Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant. Hebrews 7, 12, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. That one verse should kill that teaching for all time. When there is a change of priesthood, and he goes through that meticulously, Jesus is now the high priest, not the Aaronic priesthood, not the Levitical priesthood. It's Jesus forever. And because of that, there's a change of law. So I don't know if you were keeping up on the news or anything here of recent. One megachurch pastor has been in the news quite a lot. People like to sort of bash uh, Christianity and they get a chance. They'll take advantage of it. And so Andy Stanley wrote a book and preached a sermon in which he said, Christians today are no longer under the Ten Commandments. They're no longer obligated to keep the Ten Commandments and, in fact, ought to totally move away from the Ten Commandments because it, he, he basically says every problem the church has today, as far as the world is concerned, is because of the fact that we keep going back to the Old Covenant and it makes us rigid and judgmental and critical. And so I'm going to tell you, he got trashed big time on that one from everyone, believers and non-believers alike. Uh, and somebody asked me about it, and I says, I preach the same thing, but I'm just a little pastor, so I don't get in the news like he does. So the problem, people will say, well, we can't kick out the Ten Commandments. Why can't we? Well, because then everybody will do what they want. So let's go through them and compare it with the New Testament, the New Covenant laws. The first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, that was the biggest commandment as far as God was concerned. That was the biggie. And in fact, when you read about the nation of Israel in the book of Judges and, and uh, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll see this was the one that they kept I mean, violating. They would conquer a, a neighboring nation uh, with the power of God. And this neighboring nation were worshiping Baal and they'd start worshiping Baal. And so after they did that for a while, God would have an enemy conquer them and they'd be slaves and they would repent and go back to worshiping God. And then God would bring them back to power and then they'd go back to worshiping Baal or some other God and they'd get conquered again. And if you read through that, it's like up and down, up and down, up and down. And in fact, if you were to count, uh, it would be several dozen times they were conquered, released, conquered, set free, conquered, uh, given freedom, all on the basis of worshiping pagan gods. We, uh, the first work, uh, missionary trip that we did as a church, um, well, not the first, but the first prayer walking trip we did, we went to Bangkok, Thailand. And uh, I'd never been on any mission trip before. On this particular one, we were walking through the strips of streets of Bangkok, and on every street corner, there was a, a, a Buddha. I almost said Baal. A Buddha. Every taxi cab we went on, there was a Buddha hanging from the mirror. 
in many of the houses, there was a Buddha on the table, a Buddha in the yard. And then there were these bots or temple areas in which there were Buddhas. And so there were little Buddhas, sitting Buddhas, laying down Buddhas, standing up Buddhas, 100 feet tall Buddhas, Buddhas made out of stone, Buddhas made out of gold, Buddhas made out of, of uh, emerald. I mean, there was every kind of Buddha under the sun of every size, shape, and make. And in every corner where they had these little Buddhas, there was incense that people would burn to these Buddhas. And it smelled, it got so sickening, this constant smell to these Buddhas. And I, I would stop and look and I think, how can anybody with half a brain think that that dead thing is going to do anything? And then there was a place where we went, there was a stone statue. And it was old and it was solid rock. And there was a place over here where you put some money in and from the, for the money you got some gold leaf. And so if you had a headache, you would put the gold leaf on the head of this little stone statue, and that would make your headache go away. And if you had arthritis in your elbow, you would put gold leaf on the elbow of this little stone statue. Well, this little stone statue was covered gold leaf. And I was looking around thinking, I can finance my mission trip right here. <laughs> I'm not sure what they would do to someone that they caught scraping gold leaf off the little statue, but I was very tempted. And again, I had this thought, I can't believe somebody would actually pay good money and put gold leaf on a rock and think that that could make any difference in their health, but they did. Lots of people did. But the commandment, the first one, is they won't worship any god but one god. In the New Testament, uh, the, the letters written to the churches, New Covenant, uh, have lots, much, much to say about this. One particular spot, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there, but for us there is but one God, the Father, whom, for whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so... Paul says, yeah, you see them everywhere. But there's only one God, the one we worship. And he makes that emphasis repeatedly uh, through the New Testament. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. In Acts 17, 29, Paul says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And basically Paul's saying here, uh, that's, he wouldn't probably use this word, but it's a good one similar to what he would have said, and that's stupid. Acts 19.26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away considerable numbers of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And then the warning, this is a pretty severe warning in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness and unrighteousness, we could say, what is that in particular? In particular, this is worshiping anything but the one God, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And that's the word stupid. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against uh, this kind of worship and belief. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now we tend to read that and think that's uh, swearing. When you hit your ham, uh, hand with a hammer, uh, break off a steel head, somebody cuts in front of you in traffic, and you swear. Uh, th that really wasn't talking about swearing in, as we would know it today as swearing. It was swearing in the sense of an oath. Uh, it was a way of, of, it was sort of became almost a magic formula that you would say something in the name of or in the image of and that would then validate what you were saying as true or make it happen. Uh, Matthew 5.33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. And so you don't make a vow, make a, a swear by the name of God that you will indeed do such and such thing. James 5.12 says, But above all, brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And so that's almost identical to the third commandment. Uh, you don't try to convince somebody that you will indeed keep your word simply by the fact that you say, I swear by the name of God or by Jesus or by heaven or any other thing. He said, let your yes be yes, your no, no. Anything beyond that is evil and is wrong. Number four, this is the one that's uh, kind of a sticky one often as we look at the old and the new. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath day was Saturday. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall, do no, uh, you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, your male, your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is within them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so as we talk about Old Covenant, New Covenant, this is the one that most often gets brought up. And it's one of the reasons is because it's repeated often in the Old Testament because of the nation of Israel violated it. And then it became the focal point as they were convinced that if they kept the law with enough detail, then the Messiah the deliverer of Israel would come. And so they became almost obsessed with it. And Jesus regularly was attacked for doing good, healing people on the Sabbath day. So Paul said in Romans 14, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be convinced in his own mind. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not 
for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So Paul regularly says, you can worship on Wednesday if you like, or on Monday or Saturday or Sunday, whatever day you decide. Galatians is the letter that Paul writes where he deals in that letter with this problem from beginning to end. The fact that the Jews were trying to make the Gentiles obey the law. And he says in chapter 4, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He's talking about the old covenant, the law of the old covenant. Why are you going back to living that way when you've been set free from that? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I fear for you for, for, that perhaps you're not really a believer in Christ uh, because you're going back and keeping the Old Testament law. And so he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And Paul is obviously implying that <clears throat> that is not a law that we live under today. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So I'm going to read this and I'll afterwards ask you the question, is this a suggestion casual statement or is it a clear command imperative given by the writer of the Hebrews to the church and therefore to us today let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near so if we want to look at the commandments that we have today this is a major one in fact, the emphasis in which this is written in the Greek language is a double negative with the verb on the front. It's the strongest command probably in the New Testament just in the way it's written and structured. Don't forsake gathering together as is the habit of some. Um, 1950, the average Christian attended church every week, missing an average of two to four weeks a, a year. Today, the average Christian, the really high committed ones, uh, go one Sunday, miss the next Sunday, go one Sunday, mix the next Sunday. And the ones that are in but not real committed, once a month is pretty much the max for them. And that's kind of normal for the church in the U.S. today as it's gone. And uh, so you can worship on Saturday. This is Wednesday, Sunday. But the fact is God makes the emphasis. Gathering is critically important, and he wants us to do that. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together, together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to their number Every day, those who are being saved. And so if you ask yourself the question in this passage, how often do they get together? Every day. Colossians 2.16, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. No one is to be your judge. That's because we're not under the old covenant, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Now, though it isn't in the, new Test or in the Ten Commandments, law of food became a big deal. And uh, 1 Timothy, Paul says, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Everything, everything, everything created by God is good. 
pig is good, horse is good, whatever, nutria is good, everything created by God is good, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word and God in prayer. You know what the word sanctified means? What's the word that they use now for food that you buy that's highly valued? Organic. It is made organic by means of the word of God and prayer. So God organizes food. That's <laughs> a new word. Number five, I'm going to have to go past our time there. Number five, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord gives you. Now this particular commandment, Paul quotes word for word in the New Testament doesn't uh, add to it or anything. He just gives it just pretty much the way it is. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. That one is pretty steady all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Honor your father and your mother. Six, you shall not murder. Galatians 5:18. if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and if you forgot anything, things like these, which means all the other stuff too, of which I forewarn you just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, needs to be no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us, be, let us not become boastful, challenging one, one another, envying one another. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Old Testament, don't murder. New Testament, don't hate. So every... Old Testament law is elevated in the New Covenant. In other words, it's actually more difficult. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Ephesians 5, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Not even a little bit, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk. My wife used to quote that all the time to me. Uh, when she's out, uh, I go fishing. Now, don't go telling bad jokes while you're fishing. No filthiness, no silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving a thanks. This is, for this you know that with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You shall not steal. Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer. He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he may have something to share with one who has need. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And basically that was being in any kind of a court where you said something about him that wasn't true. And so I'm not going to read that one. And we'll jump to number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so I don't covet anything that Ted Pratt has. I only covet what's in the Cabela's catalog. Hebrews 13, 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, I will never forsake you. 
so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So the laws in the new covenant are way beyond the laws in the old. And they revolve around love. They re revolve around serving the Lord. And they revolve around character as opposed to just simply obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you will help us always to serve you well and to pursue and desire holiness and righteousness. We hunger and thirst to be like you, to serve you, and Lord, to be complete, lacking in nothing. Give us the strength to live a life that pleases you in every detail. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.